Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does anybody in here ever struggle with getting distracted when you pray? Have you ever started praying and you're connecting, trying to connect with God? You really maybe even feel like you're connecting with God there, and then all of a sudden you don't know what happened. You suddenly realize you're not praying anymore. You're thinking about a grocery list. You're thinking about something somebody said to you yesterday. You're thinking about something that you forgot about tomorrow. And you come to realize, man, I've been walking down some rabbit trail of thought for I don't know how long. And then you try to kind of run back into the mode of prayer and apologize to God for being distracted and then kind of sign off before you get distracted again. Has anybody ever been there? Right? I think all of us probably have. If so, if you struggle to ever struggle staying in a lane of focus when you pray... This passage is going to encourage you in an interesting way because the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, evidently struggled sometimes with the very same issue. All right, so stand with your Bibles open, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read this text and then I'll explain why I say that. Verse 1 For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known. To me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, like asked last week, I'm going to just assume that, that made all, all that made perfect sense to everybody. It's crystal clear, and we can all just kind of leave right now no this is a very dense passage this is a very dense text and we need to pray that God will help us to understand what's here would you have a seat as I pray God I do pray that you through your Holy Spirit would help us our minds and our hearts to understand and to believe what we can't understand and believe on our own this is your word we know that it's through your word that we understood your gospel that drew us near to you we've been saved We know it's through your word that we're sanctified. It's your word that restrains our flesh. It's your word that we need in our life to help us fulfill our purpose in this life, and that's to be more conformed to the image of your Son. So I pray that your word would do its work in our life this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your grace for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we read just now is basically a big Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail in the middle of a prayer that Paul is praying. All right, Paul has been uh, teaching the church in Ephesus about unity in the church. Uh, the idea, and we looked at this last week at the end of the second half of chapter 2, the idea that we're created one church in Christ, one bride, one people, one race. And as we turn the corner into chapter 3, Paul says, For this reason, 
since we are one people, one family, since we now have union in Christ and with each other, for this reason, I want to pray for you. You may be thinking, well, I don't see that. That confuses me. Even when we read that text a moment ago, it doesn't sound like he's praying. Well, that's because starting in verse 1, or at the end of verse 1, getting into verse 2, there's a 12-verse long distraction between where he starts the prayer and picks up the prayer. When you get to verse 14, if you run your eyes down to verse 14, you'll see what I mean. He says, for this reason. In other words, let me get back to where I was in verse 1. Oh, by the way, where was I? All right, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, which means the text that we're in this morning is the Apostle Paul's rabbit trail of thought right here in the middle of a prayer that he starts for this church that they would experience the unity that he spent a lot of time explaining to them they need to be experiencing in Christ. But I want you to know this morning that this is not just some kind of random ADHD moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired distraction that we need to work through and study through because we know all of God's Word is profitable for us to be taught to us and so we want to work through this because we know it's for our good and really here's what ha- here's what happened all right here's what happened he's going into this prayer that they'll experience unity that they'll experience this oneness in christ in practical ways they'll begin to live this out the, the kind of unity he's been spending a lot of time talking about he begins this prayer in verse one and all of a sudden in verse two it's like wait time out maybe i don't need to pray that for y'all just yet because i'm not sure you get this I'm not sure you really understand what I'm trying to teach you about this unity and what this unity in the body is truly to be about. But Paul's like, I need, before I pray for you and that you'll experience unity in Christ, I need to make sure that this really sticks. I need to make sure you really understand that this isn't Paul's plan. This isn't Paul's idea. This is God's idea. This is God's plan. This is God's plan for the entire world. You see, it's almost as if, as he begins this prayer, time out, he still senses this inferiority complex in the life of the Gentiles, feeling like they don't fit in, like they're still on the outside, like they're not good enough. And, and also senses the superiority complex in the Jews up on their high horse, making the Gentiles feel less than. And so he's like, before I pray for you, I want to really make sure we're all on the same page. I want you to understand, Jews, I know it's really hard for you to embrace and understand that these uncircumcised Gentiles belong in the family of God and are your family and there's level ground at the foot of the cross. I need all of you to be on the same page and all of you to understand how important this is. It's not my idea. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. And so he's spending this 12 verse long, what seems like a rabbit trail to us, drilling down and helping us understand what God's plan is for the entire world and it involves the unity of the church so let me give you three truths that's a dense passage but I believe these are the three main truths that Paul wanted the church in Ephesus it wants us to pull out to draw out of this text so that this idea about unity in the church sticks before we get to his prayer here's the first thing that we're reminded of in these verses all right this is God's plan this is the first thing we're reminded of about his plan God's plan for the world is mysterious God's plan for the world is mysterious verse one well what he does in verse one is Paul tells us where he's writing the letter from all right he says he's in a prison cell in Rome he's there incarcerated because he's been preaching the gospel illegally to Gentiles but notice he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome What does he say there? He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. In other words, Paul has such a high view of the sovereignty of God that there he is in a very uncomfortable situation. Sure, it wasn't very comfortable in prison, right? Probably would have wanted to be out of prison, but there he is in prison. But he doesn't complain about where he's at. He isn't bitter because he knows according to the sovereign will of God, he's right where he's supposed to be. 
He's there on assignment. He's there for his good. And if you read verse 14, he understands he's there for the good of those who are in the church in Ephesus because he's able to send them this teaching. He's able to send them this letter. How would it change your current attitude if in your current circumstances you had that same outlook that Paul had? Not the point of the passage. Definitely something to think about this morning. Let's continue on. He presents himself like that. He is about to pray again for their unity as a church, and then he gets distracted. And he begins to explain that God himself has revealed to him a mystery that he wants the church in Ephesus to embrace with their whole life. He says the word mystery three times in verses 2 through 6, and then again he says it down in verse 9. Now, the word that Paul is using for mystery there is not the same way that we would use the word mystery today. We usually think about it like a puzzle to be solved, right? That's the way we think about something mysterious or a mystery. But he's using it as a word to describe something that was previously hidden and now it's been revealed. And he's specifically referring to God's salvation plan for the entire world. Right, God's, in other words, God's salvation plan for the world has always been in motion. Right, It was in motion in the Old Testament. It was made known to certain people along the way. But for the most part, for a lot of people, it was foggy in their minds as to what it was all about. But now Christ has come, and here we are on this side of the cross, and there's been a new revealing of God's plan for the world that wasn't clearly understood before. And Paul's been entrusted with the task of preaching this mystery to the world. Now, what is the big mystery? This might not be too revolutionary for you. This might feel anticlimactic because he just spent the second half of chapter 2 talking about it. But it's in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's what Paul's doing. He's doubling down, he's tripling down, he's quadrupling down, and even more on the mystery that he's already unpacked in the previous passage. That the Gentiles, people far off from God, can now be made partakers along with Jews of God's great blessings in the church of Christ Jesus. There it is. That's the great scandalous mystery that he's referring to. In other words, into this world, this culture right here that was deeply divided in their culture, in their context, there was a deep division between Gentiles and Jews. But Jesus has stepped in. They say they're saved. And a lot of them have been saved. There's still division that exists. And Jesus is stepping in and reminding them through Paul right here that where there was great hostility and there was great pride and prejudice and division and ethnic superiority before, listen, Jesus is stepping in and saying, Jews over here, Gentiles over here, you've both come to me through faith. You've come to me through the same doorway. You've come into the family of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You've both come to God. None of you is better than the other one. Both of you have come to me through the shed blood of Jesus through the same door of grace. There's level ground at the foot of the cross. Both of you experience union with me the same way. And you need to understand as you've come into union with me, now you're to come in union with one another. Although you may be very different in all kinds of different ways. Now I'm giving you the power. I filled you with my spirit to treat each other like family, even though you may be very different in many ways. Because you're one new man now. You're one new race. You're no longer enemies. Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility, Paul said in the previous passage. You are one big family in Christ. So, I'm about to pray for you guys, Paul's saying, but don't forget the mystery that is now being revealed. And here it is. There's one church, one family, one race. And you need to treat each other 
Like that's true. This is the first point. The plan for the world is mysterious. But then it's like Paul zooms out and he's like, but I want this to sink in at an even greater level in your heart. That the redemptive plan of God that I'm revealing to you that was mysterious, that has been unveiled, I want you to know that this has always been God's plan. This isn't plan B. So God's plan is mysterious for the world. God's plan for the world, number two, is also eternal. You say, well, where where do you see that in this passage? Well, look down at verse 11. You see verse 11 begin with that word, this. All right. In other words, everything that I've been talking to you all about, about unity in the church, everything I've been talking to you about, one race, one man, one body, one church, this was according to the eternal purpose that he he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right. The word eternal there in the original language, it's referring to time, but time without beginning and time without end. Now, we can try to kind of wrap our minds around time without any ending, but you start to try to understand time without any beginning. That's when the gears in your mind begin to start breaking apart and you get a big old headache if you think about that too much. We don't have a compartment for it. It's very complex. We can get very confused by it. But what I want you to know this morning, that as we embrace that truth as disciples, that truth about God by faith, that that He is eternal, it's actually something that becomes a very comforting and central truth in our life because what we learn about this eternal God is He's an eternal God that has eternal purposes for you in Christ that are only good. According to the eternal purpose. Purpose here means a design or a plan. So Paul's referring here to God's grand design, God's grand plan for the world that He's already again been talking about. We understand what he's talking about if we've been paying attention in this letter but what he needs us to understand what we need to understand is his eternal his his plan for the world is eternal in other words we need to zoom out and understand his plan for the world like this that before the world began god's plan was to redeem unto himself a people from every tribe tongue people and nation who for all of eternity will enjoy a love relationship with god and a family love relationship with each other all of the redeemed for his glory forever and ever now how do we know that that's the eternal plan of god well it's a good question i'm glad you asked it and one reason is because paul's already told us in chapter 1 verse 4 what did he say he said even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Meaning this, that God, before He put the first molecule in place in the universe that He created and designed, before time we know it ticked its first second on the clock, God set His heart on you and me in Christ Jesus. That ought to make somebody go, whoa. You want to talk about purpose and value and significance. Listen, before time, if you're a Christian, God set his heart on you and chose you. You say, well, can you explain that? No, I can only just read it in verses like Ephesians 1 verse 4. And celebrate it and praise God for it. That was his plan before creation itself was created. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we learn more about this plan that's eternal. This eternal plan of God to save sinners. Because God sets his heart on Abraham. 
By his grace, not because Abraham was special, not because Abraham had done anything special or right or earned his way to God. God chose him, set his heart on him before the foundations of the world, found Abraham, chose Abraham, pursued Abraham, and said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to begin a covenant relationship with you. And what he says next to Abraham reveals something really important to us about the eternal plan that God has for the world. And it's this, that it was never just about Abraham. That it was never just about Abraham's people. Here's what God purposed to do before time itself. Genesis 12, 3. Abraham, through you and your family, all families, all peoples, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning it was never just about Abraham. It was never just about Israel. Be careful. We've got to be careful sometimes we don't start rewriting church history in our minds and start thinking that God only came to save the Gentiles, which if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. A lot of us in here are Gentiles. We can't start thinking that God only came to save us Gentiles because the Jews in the Old Testament and the New Testament rejected God. And he was like, they said no thanks. And God was like, okay, well, I'll open the door for all the Gentiles to come in and enjoy salvation. That's not the story of the Bible. The beauty of the Christian church is that we, as God's people, have always been a part of God's plan. It was never just about the Jewish people. The Jewish people were certainly God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but God's eternal plan was to always, Genesis chapter 12, use them as a vehicle to make himself and his glory known around the earth. So we know that this was his eternal plan. Why? Because Paul told us so. Because we get more details about it in Genesis chapter 12. And three, here's another reason we know this is the eternal plan plan of God because we get a peek at the end of his eternal plan for this world in the Bible how many of you remember a time in human history not too long ago when you would go to the movie theater and movies were projected on the screen and enjoyed through something called a film strip film strips that were wrapped on a reel the reel was put on the projector the film strip was filled with Images that were printed on that film strip and it rolled to the light of that projector and projected a movie that ran on a screen. And there you watch that screen. And how did you know that that... Anybody remember that, by the way? I barely remember that. Um, and then how did you know that the movie was over? Well, it started rattling and making a weird sound, right? And it was like, all right, movie's over. Time to go home. Now, some of us are only familiar with that sound because it's an effect on Instagram, right? But that was actually a sound that those projectors made. And back then, the way that they would edit those uh, film strips and edit those movies is you could actually get enough room. You could actually lay out that entire movie on that film strip. You could lay out that entire movie scene by scene, and you could actually stand over that in an editing room, and you could see all those different scenes at the same time. So you, you were able to do that. Why? Because you were existing outside of the framework of that movie, which means you could see the beginning of it, It means you could see the end of it. It means you could see everything in between. Now, when that was played through the projector, right, it was seamlessly wove together as a story played out scene by scene. But you could take that film strip, lay it out, and you could see all those scenes at one time. And here's what the Bible helps us understand about God. God exists outside the parameters of time. He exists outside of the movie of the story of human history that he authored and that he's directed, which means he sees Genesis 1-1 and Revelation chapter 21 all at the same time. He can see the beginning of time. He can see the end of time. He can see what's happening right now in this moment of time all at the same time. Because God exists outside of the parameters of time. 
You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, let me prove it to you. There's a point in the Bible when God said to a man just like you, just like me, with a nature just like yours and a nature just like me, someone who was living their life out on the timeline of human history like you are, in a sequence of events, moving on to the next moment, locked into time that God has created. He came to a man just like you, just like me, named John, and he said, John, I'm going to let you step out of the parameters of time for just a moment, and I'm going to let you see things for just a moment the way that I see things. I'm going to let you take a peek at the final scene of the story that's already been written. Something, a place where I'm already there. I'm here. I'm back there. I'm everywhere. I'm outside of the parameters of time. And I'm going to let you step out of the parameters of time that you're locked in for just a moment. And I'm going to let you see to the end of time. And I'm going to let you see a, a, what's already a reality in the future. And in Revelation chapter 7, John wrote down what he saw this fixed part of the eternal plan of God, the end of the story. Revelation 7 9. And this is what he saw. John said, after this I looked, and behold, I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How awesome is that? You know, today's Palm Sunday. It's a day we commemorate and we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? Where he's moving into Passion Week, and they're to greet him. you got the Jews, and they have palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna with their lips. But we know that their heart is far from the work that Jesus is on route to accomplish at the cross. But what John gets to peek in on at the end of human history as we know it is he gets to see a, perf- a future perfected version of that first Palm Sunday scene when one day not just Jews, but people from all nations, all of the redeemed, will gather and will worship the Lamb of God as one around His throne. How do we know that it's the eternal plan of God to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Here's how we know. He's already shown us the end of the story. He's already shown us the final scene. And what is in the final scene? A multitude of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different nations, all redeemed in Christ together in heaven for all of eternity, enjoying a love relationship with their heavenly Father and enjoying a love family relationship with one another forever and ever. That's the eternal plan of God for the world. And because he's an eternal God, that's his eternal plan, because he's an eternal God, nothing will get in his way when it comes to accomplishing that plan. He's not changing it, and he's not slowing down, ceasing to accomplish it. And I just want to pause right here because these are some big truths, right? Here's some big truths that we're celebrating this morning. But can I pause here, and can we just zoom in on your life this morning as we're celebrating the sovereign and eternal nature of our God? How this is an amazing, wonderful, comforting truth that we can apply to our lives personally today. Some of you walked in here. I don't know who you are. But some of you came in here today. You're going through a really difficult situation. You're a child of God. You're a Christian. And yet life, kind of like Paul in that prison cell, is very trying for you right now. It's very difficult for you right now. It feels very chaotic. But what I want you to remember, I want you to lean in, I want you to rest in this truth today about the eternality of God, the eternal nature of God, the sovereign nature of God. Because your life may feel chaotic today, but I want you to stop. I want to pray the Holy Spirit would stop you in your tracks this morning and that you would celebrate the eternality of God by this, that you'd remember that that's your Father. 
that you remember this morning who your father is. Who is your father? If you're in Christ, he is the eternal God of the universe who stands outside of the parameters of time, who holds the whole world in his hands, who holds all of history, redemptive history in his grasp. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he holds your life in his hands too. And he will never let you go. If you're in Christ, remember, the eternal God is your heavenly Father who set His heart on you. He saved you. One day, He's going to glorify you. He saved you. He's sanctifying you. He's sustaining you. One day, He's going to get you to glory. And in between here and there, here's what that means. We can lean in. We can trust in His nature. We can cast our anxieties on Him. We can trust Him with every part of our lives, even the chaotic parts of our lives. And we can even, in the hardest times, we can trust Him. And we can also, even in the hardest times, allow him to use our lives to shine the light of the gospel in those difficult times as we lean in to him and allow him to do that sake of the gospel for the glory of god which brings us to the final point this morning god's plan for the world is accomplished through us god's plan for the world is accomplished through the church god's doing a work in the world he's at work in the world His main work that he's doing, the eternal plan of God, is to save a people, to redeem a people to himself from their sins, to bring those sinners that he saves into this diverse, unified family called the church. And he chooses to accomplish that plan through the church. Now, there's an individual and there's a corporate component at work here. All right, the, we're reminded of the individual component as we read about Paul right here. Did you notice as we were reading that text how fired up Paul is about being on mission for God? Did you catch that? I mean, he's living on mission for God. He's, he's excited about being able to preach to these Gentiles, people far off from God. And about the Jesus, the Son of God, who stepped into the film strip of human history and died on the cross and rose again so that anybody, even a Gentile, can be brought near to God and experience the unsearchable riches of Christ in their life. He is on mission. He's passionately on mission to tell people about Jesus. And Paul's a wonderful example of what it looks like to live on mission for Jesus. But he's also, leaning in here, some of you this morning, he's also a reminder that God can use anybody to make a difference in this world for His glory. He can use anybody in his mission who surrendered to him. Regardless of where you've come from, regardless of who you think you are because of what you've done or where you've come from or the baggage that you're bringing into this thing. Some of you this morning, you may feel unworthy. You may feel unqualified. You're a Christian, but you kind of feel like you've got too much baggage for God to ever be able to use somebody like you. You kind of feel like you got into this thing by the skin of your teeth. And you're kind of, I'm in the family of God, but I'm not sure God could really use somebody like me. If that's you, you're in good company. Because Paul felt those exact same feelings. Look at the life of Paul. He struggled with it. Certainly, he was human. He struggled with those same insecurities. Look, Even look at verse 7. You can sense Paul's amazement and his humility that he gets to share this message. That he gets to declare this mystery. He says, I'm the very least of all the saints. You say, well, I don't feel worthy to be used by God. Neither did Paul. You say, I got too rough of a past. I don't think God could ever use me because of the baggage I'm bringing into this thing. Paul was with you. He felt those same feelings. He was a murderer. He was complicit in the murder of a faithful disciple of Jesus in the first century named Stephen. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus saved him. Jesus restored him. 
Jesus forgave him. Jesus accepted him. And he began to use his life. You know why? Because that's what Jesus does. That's the beauty of the gospel. In a world that pushes you down and pushes you to the side and reminds you of who you used to be, Jesus lifts you up. He pulls you in. He reminds you of the new person who you are in him. And he loves to use people like you. To do what? To go and tell a world of Gentiles, and in verse 9, everybody that through trusting in that Messiah, they too, like you, can be saved and can be brought into this united, diverse family called the church, and God can use their life to make a difference too. And they can get a front row seat to enjoying themselves the unsearchable, unthinkable riches of Christ. So there's an individual component. There's also a corporate component to this as well. In other words, we're not called to just be soloing it out there on mission for God. We're called to be on mission as a unified church. And I think all, most of us understand this to a certain degree. We've spent a lot of time talking about this, that missions isn't just a little slice of what we do. It's not just something we print on a page that we're about and put on a wall. It's not just we don't relegate it to a class you take here. Missions is not just a slice of what we do. It's what we do. It's who we are. We're committed to following Christ and engaging everyday people with the gospel to be fully restored and satisfied in Him. That's our mission statement. We understand that. God's eternal plan for the world is to redeem people to Himself, and He does that through the mission work of local churches like ours who go into their community, engage their community with the gospel. Listen here. But what He wants us to understand in this passage that this church wasn't getting 2,000 years ago and we easily lose sight of today is that the gospel isn't just something we communicate with our words. It is. It's something that has to be articulated and preached in order for people to hear it and receive it and believe it and be saved. But the lost world, Paul wants us to understand, isn't just listening to the gospel we declare. They're watching us. They're watching to see if it's really all that different in the way we treat each other in here than it is out there. They're watching the way that we talk to one another. They're watching the way we serve one another. They're watching the way we treat one another and love one another. They're paying attention, in other words, as to how unified. They may not say it that way, but they're paying attention. There's something within humanity. They're paying attention to how unified we are. The world is watching. And the question is, every local church ought to ask this question. What kind of sermon about unity are we preaching through our relationships within this body? And by the way, this is very, very interesting. The world, the people in the world are not the only people watching us. Look at verse 10. And what Paul, the point Paul's making here, the point of this is to help us grasp how serious of a thing, how significant of a thing this is that we're a part of called the church. What does he say in verse 10? So that through the church, God is accomplishing his plan through the church, through the church, the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God might be known to who? Rulers and authorities. What in the world does that mean? Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about beings in heavenly places. Let me summarize to you what he's saying. He's saying angels and demons are watching and studying and looking at the church and learning about the gospel. That means we got a supernatural audience this morning that's watching the church. You say, well, I don't know. Angels and demons aren't omniscient. They're not all-knowing. They have to learn. They don't know all about God's plan. It was hidden from them, just as it was hidden from the world until it was revealed. So this may be new to you, but it's true. So there are beings in heavenly places watching this redemptive story that God is authoring 
through us unfold. Schindler Drive, what that means this morning is we have a cosmic audience this morning. There are beings in heavenly places watching us, learning about the gospel. They're listening to this sermon. They were listening to us sing songs about Jesus. They were watching kids get baptized this morning. They were watch, they're going to watch us in a few moments, observe the Lord's Supper, and celebrate what that means. And they're also watching, and this is the point Paul's driving at, they're watching how unified we are, how we treat each other, how we talk about each other, how we love each other, how we extend grace to one another. They're paying attention and baffled at how a bunch of people from a bunch of different backgrounds have been so radically impacted by the gospel that they're treating each other like family in spite of their differences. That they're living on mission together. And as they see that happening, it's so cosmically remarkable that angels are looking into that and marveling while demons look into that and tremble. Here's what this helps us remember this morning. This is not a social club. This is a cosmic body that we've been brought into by the grace of God, which has extreme significance, extreme eternal significance. Because through this body, through the gospel we proclaim, and through the gospel unity that we maintain, what are we doing? We're bearing witness to the world of the power of the gospel and the victory that Jesus has over sin and division. That's why Paul wants to make extra sure that we understand the significance of unity in the church. It matters. How we treat each other matters. How we extend grace to one another matters. How we bear with one another in all things matters. It's all of eternal significance. God's plan for our world is to bring a people to Himself, yes. And His plan is to do that through His main messenger, His bride, the church. And it's through us proclaiming the gospel with our words and maintaining gospel unity in our relationships that we, in a very significant, glorious way, demonstrate and communicate the gospel to the community and the world around us. Being unified matters. That's why he goes off on this holy and spirit-inspired rabbit trail for 12 verses. But look at how he ends. Look at verse 12. Because he ends in a way that shows us the key to living out this unity. Look at verse 12. He says, In whom, talking about Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Okay, well, why in the world would he end this Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail, this whole section about being unified and on mission together as a church with a comment about our bold access to God? Here's why. It's very simple. The key to moving closer together in unity as a body is directly tied to us as individuals growing in our closeness and our relationship with God. When my wife and I uh, were in marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, nothing wrong with marriage counseling, just want to make sure that's clear, pre-marriage counseling, uh, we were given a great piece of advice that really uh, helped us think about marriage. And the counselor said to think about marriage like a triangle. And I looked at him like you're looking at me right now. But he showed me the picture and showed us a picture like this. And you can look at this picture and it'll hopefully make sense to you. It's a pretty simple concept. And he said, you know, husband, Jonathan, that's you there at the bottom of that triangle over there on that corner. And Rebecca, that's you over there, the wife there on that triangle. 
And Jesus is there at the top, or God is there at the top. And here's the idea, that as both of you stay committed to staying on that upward track in a growing relationship with God, the closer you'll grow in your relationship with one another. You say, well, Pastor, have you ever had to use that? Have you ever had to use that tool? Do y'all fight? Do y'all ever argue? Do you ever have a disunity? No, we never fight. (laughs) We don't. I mean, we may have intense conversations that you can hear three or four houses down, but we never fight, right? (laughs) Of course we have moments of disunity. Of course we hit bumps in our marriage. Of course we have, we experience contention in our relationship. But let me tell you, so often, here's what happens. One of us or both of us have lost sight of this. One of us or both of us have gotten off that upward track of growing in an intimate relationship with God and it's created a fracture in our relationship with one another and some of you can take that with you this this message is not about marriage but this will maybe really help you this morning because some of you are so focused on fighting to get close together when you need to be focused on fighting to grow in a relationship with Christ and if you fight and grow in a relationship with Christ it'll take care of the relationship between one another So take that with you, but the triangle analogy isn't only true for marriage. It's true of all Christian relationships. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 12. The more boldly we run to Jesus, the more confident we are in the gospel, the more unified we're going to be with one another. Like the triangle. As we move boldly to God, it helps us move closer to one another. Listen, the enemy loves division. You know the reason why all of you who are raised in a church or around church can probably give some really crazy, scary, pitiful, tragic stories about fights and gripes and division in churches is because the enemy loves to sow division because he knows how much it can harm the cause of Christ. One of the main ways we put the gospel on display is through how we're a unified body and we're different than the rest of the world. How are you going to make a difference in a world that already is dealing with a lot of division and a lot of disunity when you're a body that's fighting all the time and never experiencing unity? It's one of the main ways we stand out. And the enemy loves to come along, even to churches who have experienced long stretches of unity. And will creep in and will sow division because he knows the damage that it can cause. And it can creep into any church. And any time those disunity fractures creep in, you know what we need? It isn't a pep talk. It isn't a pep rally. You can do it. Let's fight to be closer. No, you can't do it. The answer is fight to look to Christ. Fight to grow closer in your relationship with Christ. To passionately pursue Him. And as we boldly and confidently draw near to Him, man, we're going to look around and we're going to be more unified than ever in a way that will make the spiritual realms marvel and tremble. And in a way that the eternal plan of God to redeem a people to Himself of all nations, of all kinds of different people, in a way that the eternal plan of God to save sinners will be accomplished and continue to be accomplished through a faithful body of believers like us. Let's pray.